Jill Hitch, and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today, you find us recording from Galway International Festival in the O'Donoghue Theatre on the campus of the National University of Ireland in the city of Galway. This is our very first time uh, that we've done on stage in Ireland at Backlisted. Um, in fact, it's our first time in front of a live audience since the, uh, uh, since the Proust Christmas special, uh, our, our uh, Christmas special devoted to all seven of the volumes of A la Recherche de Temps Perdu by Marcel Proust, which we recorded in the London Library in December 2019. 2019. John and I have not actually seen one another before today for 20 months. Yeah. I know, right? It, it, incredible that we would want to be together again, but we do. <laughs> Uh, God, this is good. It's much better than Zoom, isn't it? Yeah. It's nice to have an audience in the room. So, and we're particularly delighted to be in an academic venue um, uh, that will have particular resonance for those of you who have read the book that we're here to discuss tonight. Uh, but first, we should do some introductions. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund the books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And joining us today is our guest... Mary Costello, round of applause. Welcome, Mary. Mary, have you come far to be here tonight? About a half an hour, a small village called Canvara. <laughs> oh, that's so you, playing the local crowd. Yes. <laughs> but you've moved back to. to yes, your, I lived in. From Galway originally? From Galway originally. I grew up here and um, <clears throat> went to Dublin when I was 17 to go to college and then worked and lived in Dublin for about 30 years and just came back in 2016. Amazing. Um, Mary's short story collection, The China Factory, was first published by Stinging Fly in 2012, and it was nominated for the Guardian First Book Award and shortlisted for an Irish Book Award. Her first novel, Academy Street, published by Canongate in 2014, won the Irish Book Awards Novel of the Year Award and was named Overall Irish Book of the Year. It was shortlisted for the International Dublin Literary Award, the Costa First Novel Prize, the EU Prize for Literature and others, and has been translated into several languages. Her second novel, The River Capture, was published in 2019 and shortlisted for the Irish Book Awards, the Kerry Group Novel of the Year and the Dalkey Novel Award. Mary, we originally planned to discuss an Irish novel here in Galway for Backlisted. Have you chosen an Irish novel for us to discuss? I'm afraid I haven't. <laughs> I've, uh, I've chosen a book that has an Irish name, actually. Costello or Costello is a very common Irish name, especially in the west of Ireland and in the south. It's Norman originally. But uh, it's written by a South African writer about a, a character who's from Australia. So we, we're in several continents. Although there is, a, there is, a, there is maybe a, a kind of a glimmering of an Irish connection in the book because the, the novelist Elizabeth Costello, the eponymous novelist, has written, which we'll come on to later. Well, well should we fold that into the main Yeah, we will. Let's do that. All right, let's do that. Uh, John, what have you been reading this week? Okay, I've been reading um, a, a, a remarkable book called A Hut at the Edge of the Village by John Moriarty. Uh, it's a collection of the writings of the Irish... Uh, um, philosopher, mythographer, theologian, John Moriarty, of, of whom I knew nothing until very recently. Um, I'm uh, working with a writer called Martin Shaw, who is 
the editor of this collection of John Moriarty's writings, and he commended it to me, and I read it, and it was, it's, I have to say, uh, exactly up my street. Um, the book, uh, what, do you want to, what Do You Need to Know About uh, John Moriarty? He, um, as Paul Durkin says on the back, he is uh, the most outstanding philosopher-theologian since Bishop Berkeley, Ireland's most outstanding philosopher-theologian since Bishop Berkeley in the 18th century. Uh, if you are interested in uh, how autobiography, folklore, myth, and theology can be woven into incredibly powerful, suggestive, complex texts, uh, I would suggest that some time spent in uh, uh, John Moriarty's company is is well. He's kind of like if he's he's like Joseph Campbell amped up to the max. He he kind of he, his book um, uh, Dream Time is is probably his most famous. But his autobiography, of which I'm going to read a very short passage in a moment, Nostos. Um, uh, there's a huge amount in this book. It's a very this is a very good. Um, uh, introduction. I'm going to read a little tiny bit from the introduction. These are not pastoral times we are living in, but prophetic. We are at a moment when the world as we understand it has been turned upside down. The challenge is that there are fewer and fewer people who can interpret such happenings in a deep, soulful way. Moriarty can do that. When culture is in a woeful crisis, the insights rarely come from Parliament, Senate or Committee. They come from the hut at the edge of the village. So let me just give you a little bit. This is from uh, his autobiography. Lapwings I remember, my mother lighting the lamp and in the field in front of the house, lapwings calling, every call a complaint. Or so it seemed to me, and the wonder was that even when they were being battered by hailstones, they didn't alter their complaints. They neither lengthened nor deepened them. In all weathers and at all hours of the night, their complaints were as elegant as their crests. What saddened me is that they were so frightened of me. I had only worked to walk into the fields and they instantly would become a flock of shimmerings, swiftly swerving as they flew, and then, as though quenching themselves, they would land farther off among the rushes where I'd no longer be able to see them. That's what happened this evening. But now, again at nightfall, they had come back to the richer feeding grounds beside the house, and that I was glad of, because if ours was a house that lapwings could come close to, then surely also... It was a house that angels would come close to. Surely tonight they would come close, because since darkness had begun to fall, this was Christmas Eve, and Madeline, my older sister, was singing Silent Night, Holy Night. And Chris had brought two bags of turf from the shed, and Babs had brought two buckets of water from the well, and already its flame perfectly calm, the lamp was giving more light than the fire, with its raptures big and small. But lamplight and firelight, that was every night. Tonight was different. Looking at the crib in the deep sill of our front window, I could see that the light of the highest heaven was in our house. It was a night of wonders. Tonight, all night, the gates of heaven would be open to us. Riding animals higher than our horse and wearing glittering vestments, not clothes, the three wise men would show us the tracks in the morning, plain as could be, we saw them last Christmas morning. And Santa Claus would come and would bring us what we asked for. To Babs, he would bring a blouse. To me, he would bring a game of snakes and ladders. And to Brenda and Phyllis, he would bring dolls. And soon, we would have supper with currant cake. There was no denying it. It was wonderful. And in a glow of fellow feeling with all our animals, I went out and crossed the yard to the cow stall. Pushing open the door, I looked in. And at first, I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. No candles lighting the windows, no holly, no crib, no expectation of kings or of angels, no sense of miracles. What I saw was what I would see on any other night, 
11 short-horned cows, some of them standing, some of them lying down, some of them eating hay, and some of them chewing the cud, two of them turning to look at me. Devastated, I had to admit, it was an ordinary night in the stall. Coming back across the yard, I looked at the fowl house and the piggery and the darkness and the silence that had settled on them. Couldn't say it more clearly. Christmas didn't happen in the outhouses. Christmas didn't happen to the animals. The animals were left out. And since the animals were left out, so inside me, somewhere, was I. Um, terrific. Andy, what have you been reading? Uh, well, <laughs> can everyone see what that is? Uh, well, it seemed remiss to be in Ireland uh, in the week of September the 6th, 2021, because remember, this goes on the permanent record, or at least the, as long as the internet lasts, um, and not to talk about Sally Rooney's new novel, Beautiful World, Where Are You? Uh, we, uh, a long-time admirers of Sally Rooney on Batlisted, uh, John talked about normal people when it was very first published um, on an episode of Batlisted recorded at the end of the Road Festival. Three years ago. Three years ago. And uh, we both, John and I both really like her writing and have looked on over the last few years as that book has gone on to sell a million copies with a mixture of admiration and concern um, because the pleasures of that book seem to us to be considerable and literary. And it's passed off into a, 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 a realm of popular culture far beyond what we could have imagined for it. And I think what Sally Rooney herself uh, could have imagined for it. So as you probably know, this book uh, this new novel, Beautiful World, Where Are You, which was published this week, has been reviewed absolutely everywhere. I have read no reviews of it because I wanted to read the book with no spoilers and no prejudices and no um, expectations, high or low. And I finished it on the plane on the way over and I give it five stars and I thought it was great. There you go. That's the, that's, <laughs> that's the, that's the extent of my insight. I thought, I thought it was terrific. And I think it's about all sorts of different things, uh, Beautiful World, Where Are You? But one of the things that it's about, and this is really important, I get the sense that Sally Rooney is putting up with a lot of crap for having become famous in a way beyond her control. And that's not what she signed up for. But also, if she says at any point, as she has done in interviews, I'm not really enjoying this, I'm aware of quite a lot of people going, oh, shut up. Shut up. You knew what you were getting into. Everyone would want to be famous. Everyone would want to be as successful as you are. And it seems to me one of the things that she does in this book is express the good and the bad sides of that kind of fame. An almost unprecedented fame for a young woman writing the type of books that she writes. And I'm just going to read you a passage that one of the two heroines of this novel, whose name is Alice, and who is a novelist, who has become very successful overnight. Where does Sally Rooney get her ideas? I don't know. <laughs> um, I, thought, I wanted to read this out because it seems to me that you cannot listen to this and think, you lucky thing. Okay, so I'm just going to read, it's a page. Have I told you I can't read contemporary novels anymore? 
I think it's because I know too many of the people who write them. I see them all the time at festivals, drinking red wine and talking about who's publishing who in New York. <laughs> Complaining about the most boring things in the world, not enough publicity or bad reviews or someone else making more money. Who cares? And then they go away and write their sensitive little novels about ordinary life. The truth is they know nothing about ordinary life. Most of them haven't so much as glanced up against the real world in decades. <laughs> These people have been sitting with white linen tablecloths laid out in front of them and complaining about bad reviews since 1983. <laughs> I just don't care what they think about ordinary people. As far as I'm concerned, they're speaking from a false position when they speak about that. Why don't they write about the kind of lives they really lead and the kind of things that really obsess them? Why do they pretend to be obsessed with death and grief and fascism when really they're obsessed with whether their latest book will be reviewed in the New York Times? Oh, and many of them come from normal backgrounds like mine, by the way. They're not all children of the bourgeoisie. The point is just that they stepped right out of ordinary life Maybe not when their first book came out, maybe it was the third or fourth, but anyway, it was a long time ago. And now when they look behind them, trying to remember what ordinary life used to be like, it's so far away they have to squint. If novelists wrote honestly about their own lives, no one would read novels. <laughs> <laughs> and quite rightly. <laughs> maybe then we would finally have to confront how wrong how deeply philosophically wrong the current system of literary production really is. How it takes writers away from normal life, shuts the door behind them and tells them again and again how special they are and how important their opinions must be. And they come home from their weekend in Berlin. After four newspaper interviews, three photo shoots, two sold out events, three long leisurely dinners where everyone complained about bad reviews, and they open up the old MacBook to write a beautifully observed little novel about ordinary life. I don't say this lightly. It makes me want to be sick. <laughs> the problem with the contemporary Euro-American novel is that it relies for its structural integrity on suppressing the lived realities of most human beings on Earth. Woo! Now, you don't get that in much chiclet. So... <laughs> Uh, I think this book is absolutely terrific, and I applaud and salute Sally Rooney for having the strength of character and the grace under fire to write another terrific and important book, living a life that very few people, if they actually had to live it, would enjoy. So, there you go. Um, boy, that, I mean, that's, that's a hell of a passage, isn't it? Mm. I mean, it and... Massive, a lot of trees. And how, very... many, how many people here have read that Sally Rooney already? Everyone. Wow, that's... that's <laughs> everyone here has read it. That is incredible. No, about one person has read it. But what, that, that gentleman there, I think. Did you enjoy it? Yeah. Great. He said, yeah, it was great. There you are, two. <laughs> that's two five-star reviews. Right, very good. The book chat will continue on the other side of this message. Um, John, shall we, uh, we, sh we should move on to the main event? Because I think some of, actually some of the themes that are both, in both passages, our relationship with, with animals and our relationship with, with literary culture are absolutely germane to, to the book that, um, that Mary has chosen, which is 
uh, as we said, Elizabeth Costello by Joan Kutzier, published in 2003 by Sekhar and Wahlberg in the UK and Viking in the US. So now um, this novel is, uh, I think I'm spoiling nothing by saying, it is quite challenging, Mary. Mm. It has that reputation, certainly, but um, I think in the actual narrative of the, or the writing of it, it's very readable. Yeah, yeah. His prose are incredibly readable. I agree. So what I've asked John to do, John, John has taken on the challenge of preparing a description for the audience who may not have read. Normally at this about. stage um, in, 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 in the podcast, our producer, Nikki, who sadly can't be here tonight, would say, what's it about? And Andy and I will, will kind of, um, yeah, we'll sort of huff um and try her. And um and her, yeah. So here's, here's a paragraph which I'm, I'm laying on the table as, a, as an, att an attempt to say, what, to answer Nikki's, Nikki's question. Elizabeth Costello, the eponymous hero of the novel, is a famous Australian novelist, now in her late 60s and living in that strange, otherworldly realm where most of her professional life consists in delivering academic lectures or attending award ceremonies. She is still best known for her fourth novel, The House on Eccles Street, in which she liberated Molly Bloom from her soliloquy in Joyce's Ulysses and gave her new life and agency. This annoys her. Many things do, cruelty to animals in particular. The novel is divided into eight lessons, that's the subtitle, Elizabeth Costello, eight lessons, rather than chapters, built around eight speeches or lectures which Elizabeth either delivers or listens to. As David Lodge's lit was written, it is a book which begins like a cross between a campus novel and a platonic dialogue, segues into introspective memoir and fanciful musing, and ends with a Kafkaesque bad dream of the afterlife. In other words, it shows J.M. Kurtzia at his enigmatic, genre-stretching, Nobel Prize-winning best. So, does that kind of capture any of it for you? Uh, oh, very much so. Very little to add to that. I think. <laughs> <laughs> right, we can, our job is done. <laughs> but we should ask... Mary, yeah. yeah we should ask... Mary, well, if you are happy with that, then let me ask you, when did you first discover yeah. this book? You know, why have you chosen it for us and when did you first encounter it? Um, I think I... I, I Kotze used two of these chapters in a slim little book. I think it was brought out about 1999 and it was called The Lives of Animals. And he himself had delivered these two lectures at Princeton as part of the Tanner series of, lection, of, of lectures. So the, the, the two, the chapter two and three, the lives of animals, philosophers and the lives of animals, poets, he delivered those at two lectures um, in Princeton. He, he, he did that in, with the, the Nobel Prize as well. He delivers a story and it was the first time he had introduced Elizabeth Costello. Then a few years later, he brought out this book and he added more lectures. And in fact, the one about the, um, <clears throat> the evil, the problem of evil, he delivered that lecture at a real conference in Amsterdam on evil as well, the problem of evil. So he's, these are his lectures, but he, he, he had constructed the character of Elizabeth Costello some years before that. Mm. So I, um, the big draw for me, I had read Kotzea before that, The Life of Times of Michael Kay and maybe one or two others, but I didn't have the same pull until this book. And um, <clears throat> John Banville reviewed The Lives of Animals, that slim book, mm. in, in, around 1999, I think. And I, I just rushed out and bought, bought it. Obviously, the surname floored me for a start. I thought, my God, it's like a sign. You know, you, you feel it, an instant <laughs> connection. <laughs> mm. um, uh, so I bought that, and uh, the, the issue of 
the, the way she suffers for the lives of animals was what hooked me, to be quite honest with you. I knew instantly, or guessed that Kotze himself had, was um, concerned with the same issues and had the same sensibilities and sensitivities. And indeed, he's, he's much more public in recent years about how he feels um, humanity treats animals and each other, of course. Then when the book came out, it was I was in love with it. it I've read, reread it several times, and with each reading, I, you know, I think I said it to you in an email, I am floored. There are moments. It has a reputation for being very serious and dry, and there are certainly sections, especially the long um, dialogue with herself or dialogue with another guest, like the African writer or with her sister, who's a nun. There are long um, passages with a lot of logic, you know, um, but I think that her, her arguments are like Kutzea's, they're quite clear. What she does is she self-questions the whole time, and it's really about the examined life. But we do also get a lot about her own life. You know, she has a son and daughter. In the first chapter, we meet her son. So um, I think that just so that we don't give an impression that it's all dry arguments about moral and ethical issues, there is very much behind it a life lived. She's 66, as you said, she's written a successful book you know, around Joyce, as Ulysses, but she's reared to a son and a daughter. Her son is, lives in America, he's an academic, and she visits and stays with him and his wife and children. And that, he's a compassionate son, but they have, um, he is baffled by his mother. He's, he's um, absolutely perplexed at what he calls her devotion to this animal business, mm, yes. you know. Mm. Shall I just read the very opening of the book? Yeah. Because I feel like that actually sets up mm. the tone the character and the subject. And uh, uh, before I do that, I will say I totally agree with you that the presentation of long speeches, not just for their own sake, but as demonstrations of character or characters, is one of the tightrope walks that takes place in the novel, I think. And I found totally fascinating. A lot of the time I couldn't work out why I was so gripped by it because it, it's quite abstract in places, mm -hmm. but yet at the same time you feel a real person is making the case, whether you agree with it or not. So John, I'll just read the opening and then, and then I might ask you to, to build on that. There is, first of all, the problem of the opening, namely how to get us from where we are, which is as yet nowhere, to the far bank. It is a simple bridging problem a problem of knocking together a bridge. People solve such problems every day. They solve them, and having solved them, push on. Let us assume that, however it may have been done, it is done. Let us take it that the bridge is built and crossed, that we can put it out of our mind. We have left behind the territory in which we were. We are in the far territory where we want to be. Elizabeth Costello is a writer, born in 1928, which makes her 66 years old, going on 67. She has written nine novels, two books of poems, a book on bird life, and a body of journalism. By birth, she is Australian. She was born in Melbourne and still lives there, though she spent the years 1951 to 1963 abroad, in England, and in France. She has been married twice. She has two children, one by each marriage. Elizabeth Costello made her name with her fourth novel, The House on Eccles Street, 1969, whose main character is Marion Bloom, wife of Leopold Bloom, principal character of another novel, Ulysses, 1922, by James Joyce. 
In the past decade, there has grown up around her a small critical industry. There is even an Elizabeth Costello Society based in Albuquerque, New Mexico, which puts out a quarterly Elizabeth Costello newsletter. Now, I have no idea whether there is a J.M. Kurtzea newsletter that was published in 1995. I feel like there must have been. I, because how close is this to Kurtzea? I think it's very close. I mean, there's... Um, just getting back to her character for a minute, a, a minute, she's a very contrary woman at times. She mm. appears contrary. She doesn't really care about what people think any longer. And she's quite isolated because of some of the positions she takes, especially in relation to animals. Um, she's also a woman with, of great humanity. You know, she has a backbone. She doesn't um, avoid the awkward questions. She's not sure what the answers are, but she doesn't avoid the awkward questions. And uh, she, one, of the th one of the arguments she makes, I think, is for using less reason and maybe more feeling. And that's something you don't really expect from somebody who's arguing philosophical issues. She's arguing for more feeling that, you know, yeah. from Descartes on, we've relied too much and we've depended too much on reason rather than feeling or intuition. So she's calling for a little bit of that and also for more imagination rather than thought. But, um, but yes, I think that, getting back to Kutseya, I think that there's a lot. Like I said, he, was, he, he delivered some of these lectures. The, one of the, <clears throat> the books that Elizabeth Costello takes issue with in the, in the chapter on evil is a book by Paul West, where he's writing about the, the July um, plotters against, um, the, uh, against Hitler. And... Um, she questions whether it is right to represent such evil in fiction that uh, she asks, is the writer of the book Paul West? And Paul West is a real writer. And right. he wrote Which this I didn't, book. I, I didn't actually know that when I was reading the novel. I only found it when you told me. Yeah, John. He's, he is a real writer and, um, and it's a real book that he's writing about. So it's, it, it, this, is pretty, this is a pretty remarkable thing in a novel for a writer to be writing about uh, de delivering a lecture, a critical lecture about a, a book where the novelist is in the audience, mm -hmm. and um, and it, 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 that whole this is this is such a in many ways I think this is quite a miraculous book because it, it is it ought not to work a series of lectures or as as a fiction ought not to work, but it does because he is technically such a brilliant writer and he he knows how to give you enough about a character, um, but also. These are the big questions, the, the things that she cares about, the problem of evil. Uh, and, you know, she gets into a hot water. She gets terrible accusations of anti-Semitism because she said she basically compares the way we treat animals to the Holocaust. Um, but as you say, Mary, she doesn't care about who she offends. She's got to a certain point in her life where she's bored with delivering the same. She's been giving the same old lectures for years. So she's got to that point now where she, she, she is trying to get to the truth. And I think Kurt Seer is a novelist who wants to get to the truth. But you don't get to the truth by having an argument. Mm -hmm. What arguments do give you, though, is drama. And he manages to build the character around the drama of yeah. this, this, this 67-year-old woman being really fucking annoying in, at an academic lunch or uh, on, a, on a cruise ship going to Antarctica or as you say, in the, in the hotel lobby where she, she tries to tell Paul West that she's going to diss him mm -hmm. 
and he <laughs> just totally doesn't, so he the, says nothing. But, it, but uh, what I liked about that particular chapter as well, later on we discover she has a, a very strong position on evil and she says, I don't know if I believe in God, but I believe in the devil. And she traces it back when she was 19 in university. She, uh, one night, she was picked up by a guy, a sailor or whatever, and uh, went back to his flat and had drinks or whatever, and then wanted not to sleep with him. And he got angry and he beat her up. Yeah, broke her and, jaw. And uh, broke her jaw and left her in a bit. And Burnt her clothes. Yeah, burnt her clothes. Tore, tore, tore her clothes. And up. when he fell asleep, she went back into the room and took her clothes. So it was a, she said that that night evil entered her and that when Paul West wrote about, and a very graphic detail, she, she talks about uh, when the, the plotters were being executed, they were taunted by their hangman first or their executioner, and they were told what was going to happen to them, their bowels would go. It, it, a very graphic mm. um, d description of what was going to happen to them. And she argued that Paul West, by writing that, um, entered the hangman's mentality and then let the evil loose in his book. Mm. And mm. she argues that there are some things beyond evil, like forbidden places, Auschwitz or whatever, she said there are some places that maybe it's best not for humanity not to go because the genie gets out of the bottle. So however then she described herself, that's what she does because she forces us to listen to what happens to animals and abattoirs. So by the end of the, the chapter, she's come around to a sort of reconciliation about where she stands and she is reconciled to what Paul West has done. And she has, in earlier chapters, what she does is she's constantly asking people to imagine the lives of others. That that's why the, what she calls, there's a Holocaust every day in the abattoirs and in the farming industry. And she says that it's, the, it's because of the inability of us to imagine the lives of others. And she compares to what happened in Germany and Poland, that the, the people around, knew something was going wrong, but because of a willed ignorance and a, an inability to imagine the lived life of another being that has led to this. So she herself asks us to consider mm. that, just like Paul West has asked her to consider the evil. And that discussion about what the limits of art are mm -hmm. and what art can represent mm -hmm. and what art shouldn't represent is very current. I mean, yeah. I was really struck when I was reading this novel that was written 20 years ago in, as you say, a fairly um, digressive form, uh, how relevant it is to um, what we would refer to as culture war stuff, although I hate the phrase, but that, that's what it's about, the idea about whether you can say anything. Mm -hmm. what is, and if you can say anything, well, why are you saying it? Why you need to interrogate why you're saying it? people's views who mm -hmm. you don't agree with is, yeah. you know, and and that's twenty years before. I mean, that's absolutely where we are at the moment, trying to work out how we how we deal with this. But <laughs> what I love about this book is, where do you think he's going to take us next, readers, after the problem of evil in an Amsterdam conference? Uh, <laughs> your favourite chapter, I'm sure. Uh, it's just suddenly you're in a vision of a sort of purgatorial vision. It's like an Italian village where she's waiting for, to go up to give what they call a statement. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that the statement she discovers is more of a confession, really. They want to ask her what, her, what she believes in. And she says, I don't believe anything, I'm a writer. I don't I'm, there to, to I'm there to record. I'm there to record. I'm there to 
what's she used there? And the on, secretary of the invisible, the Milos's the line. Milos's line. Mm. And she has, I think, she has two goes at seeing if she can get. They open the door, a door a little bit, and she sees some light. She says, "Is that the light that Dante saw?" I'm, I don't know. It looks pretty good. And also, I kind of, I'm getting bored with being here. It's the most, in terms of a gear shift, <laughs> in yeah. a novel, and yet somehow because of this famous limpidity or whatever you want to call Kurtzier's prose, the precision, you. You, you don't throw the book across the room saying that's ridiculous. What, you know. no. it's, it's also quite funny, that bit, because... Oh, it's, it, it is. Because Elizabeth Costello, the novelist, reflects to herself, where am I? I mean, oh, this is terrible. It's really so bad. literary, this purgatory. It's like it's Kafka. Like I don't even like Kafka. I don't even like And then she says, maybe that's the point. Maybe that it's a sort of punishment. She, and yet she says that she doesn't like Kafka, but one of the, the keys of the... The two animal lessons is um, the famous uh, ape. ape and the academy. Yeah. yeah, the report to the academy. Yeah. Uh, so maybe you should read some. Okay, I was going to say just before that, um, when you read that opening bit, mm. Andy, um, it, it reminded me that it was um, forecast because she's they're, they're, he's talking about a bridge we have to cross over. Yeah. And of course, the final Far chapter side. is she's crossing over yeah. into the afterlife. Yeah. We're not sure if it's a dream, but she's at the gates of heaven. It's called At the Gate. So mm. she's standing there and she has to appear before a court of judges and she has to answer for herself. So it is very much like the gate of heaven. And there is a tribunal of judges who will hear her. What is her belief? And she keeps going back. She fails to tell them what she believes and she... But yes, I, uh, the little bit I was going to read was um, from an earlier chapter when she's gone to stay with John, her son, um, in Appleton College, which I suppose is the model for Princeton, where he mm -hmm. really read. She stays with John and his wife, Norm, and their children. And Norm is an academic as well. And they go to hear her lecture. She's, she's given a big award and they go to hear her lecture. Actually, there's a little bit of a funny bit because they, John is thinking um, the first few chapters are from his point of view. And he's a very, very sound, you know, compassionate father. And he's caught because Norma, his wife, does not like Elizabeth Costello. She thinks she, Norma herself, I think, teaches philosophy. She does. She's and, an academic philosopher and yeah. really, really finds her, her, her mother-in-law's arguments just... Flaky. Fl yeah. Yeah. So, and, um, and so she's staying at the house. Uh, the children are eating at a different table because they eat meat. And Elizabeth doesn't, uh, Norma doesn't want them having to not eat meat that night. But at the, at the gala dinner that night, John is thinking, I wonder how are the university going to organize this? Will it be vegetarian in deference to Elizabeth Costello or will it be the stand, standard fish or whatever? But anyway, um, later on, she gives this big lecture about um, how, and the truth is, and I think this is very true of Kotze as well, she's genuinely wounded and baffled by humanity's treatment of animals. She does compare it to the Holocaust and she doesn't apologize for that. And all the language that the Nazis used, they, she, she explains that they learned their techniques from the stockyards of Chicago, that the whole model for slaughter in the camps was based on animal slaughter. But um, because of this position, she, she does feel isolated, even with family around her. So this little bit is, it's at the end of the trip and John is, uh, bringing her to the airport the following morning. Seven o'clock, the sun just rising, and he and his mother are on their way to the airport. I'm sorry about Norma, he says. She has been under a lot of strain. I don't think she's in a position to sympathize. 
Perhaps one could say the same for me. It's been a short visit. I haven't had time to make sense of why you have become so intense about the animal business. She watches the wipers wagging back and forth. A better explanation, she says, is that I have not told you why and dare not tell you. When I think of the words, they seem so outrageous that they are best spoken into a pillow or into a hole in the ground like King Midas. I don't follow, he said. What is it you can't say? It's that I no longer know where I am. I seem to move around perfectly easy among people, to have perfectly normal relations with them. Is it possible, I ask myself, that all of them are participating in a crime of stupefying proportions? Am I fantasizing at all? I must be mad. Yet every day I see the evidences, the very people I suspect produce the evidence, exhibit it, offer it to me. Corpses, fragments of corpses that they have bought for money. It is as if I were to visit friends and to make some polite remark about the lamp in their living room and they were to say, yes, it's nice, isn't it? Polish Jewish skin it's made of. We find that's best, the skins of young Polish Jewish virgins. And then I go to the bathroom and the soap wrapper says, Treblinka, 100% human stearate. Am I dreaming? I say to myself, what kind of house is this? Yet I'm not dreaming. I look into your eyes, into Norma's, into the children's, and I see only kindness, human kindness. Calm down, I tell myself. You are making a mountain out of a molehill. This is life. Everyone comes to terms with it. Why can't you? Why can't you? She turns on him a tearful face. What does she want, he thinks. Does she want me to answer her question for her? They are not yet on the expressway. He pulls the car over, switches off the engine, takes his mother in his arms. He inhales the smell of cold cream of old flesh. There, there, he whispers in her ear. There, there, it will soon be over. <laughs> Strong stuff. Not a light read. Well, I, I, not, a, not a light read, no. That's not when one I, of the funny bits, no. When I, told, uh, when I told Pat McCabe we were doing that, he said, ah, oh, he said, they'll be dancing in the streets of Galway tonight. <laughs> We've got a couple of audio clips of Kurt Sayer talking, and they're quite, um, they're quite long. They're longer than we normally do, but that's because he speaks very carefully and with relative precision so he can follow the thought through to the end. Um, so I'd like to play something now, which uh, is him being interviewed in the year 2000, presumably while he was writing after the success of Disgrace, which was the second of his novels to win the Booker Prize but before the publication of Elizabeth Costello and before he won the Nobel Prize for Literature. This is Kurt Sayer talking about the satisfactions of writing. Writing in itself as an activity is neither beautiful nor consoling. It's industry. It has its own pleasures, which are the pleasures of uh, 
total engagement, hard thought, verifiable activity, verifiable results, productiveness. Beauty and consolation belong not to the activity, but to the results of that activity. The book you write may or may not be have beautiful prose. Having written the book, being able to look back on having completed the book may or may not be consoling. But writing the book is quite different. Work. Yes, it's good work. Because one isn't, in writing, uh, transforming the world into the world as it should be. That would be too much of a task if one undertook it every time. No, I think that grasping the world as it is, putting it within a certain frame, taming it to a certain extent, that is quite enough of an ambition. What do you think? There's no doubt about it. He's a, a very disciplined, hard-working man, intensely private, very reserved. And um, <clears throat> I think, you know, in his own personal life, he has suffered some tragedies um, uh, throughout his life. So I'm pretty sure he, you know, gives it a lot of thought and is very serious and very ascetic as well. You know, he doesn't drink or eat meat. He, he, he cycles or he used to. I don't know whether he does now. Why I do like him so much is he is one of the artists who truly lives um, his work in the sense that his sensitivities pour into the work. I came across um, an interview. He doesn't give many interviews now, but he gave some in the 90s to David Atwill, um, mm. a scholar who's written a, a few books, but Doubling the Point is one of his older ones. And I came across this little quote, which he put in parentheses. Uh, he was talking about something else, and you, you can see he uses a, quite a detached tone. And he speaks about one all the time. He doesn't often speak in the personal eye. He said, let me add that I, as a person, as a personality, am overwhelmed by the fact of suffering in the world. My thinking is thrown into, into confusion and helplessness by the fact of suffering in the world, and not only human suffering. These fictional constructions of mine are paltry, ludicrous defenses against being overwhelmed. So I mm. think that he put that in parentheses, and I think that's why he writes. He's overwhelmed by su the suffering of the world, and he writes to keep from being overwhelmed. It's a defense against being overwhelmed. He also, he, he is incapable. As you say, he's, 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 a, he's such a deeply intelligent writer. I don't think any writer that I know of has questioned what fiction is for, mm. what stories are for, are they for consolation? Are they, it's all his work. And he can't, he can't allow himself, it seems to me, to just to be directly identified with a character. Mm -hmm. he, he does that thing. He's, as you say, he delivers, even in the, the animal lectures, he was using Elizabeth Costello as a sort of fictional, mm. as a fictional sort of uh, baffle to keep. I don't think it was he was trying to hide, but I just think he thinks... Just saying what you think isn't, isn't enough. 
And I think he, he was very aware that he's writing a work of literature anyway. And, and he said in some of these interviews as well, all writing is, bi is autobiographical, fiction and nonfiction, because it comes out of the self. In fact, the, writer, the writing writes the writer, he says. Mm, yeah. um, and one of the, he, you know, he writes a lot of essays as well for the New York Review of Books, and he's a few collections of essays, Stranger Shores and Inner Workings. And there's one where he reviews um, a book by Robert Musil, the Austrian early 20th century. I think it's Five Women or Three Women is the title. One of the things he says is that Musil, if I can think of it correctly now, Musil uses fiction as a laboratory for the refinement of the soul. Now, I was thinking it could be applied to Kotzea. Yeah. Uses fiction as a laboratory for the refinement of the soul. And Elizabeth Costello, though she says she doesn't know if she believes in God, she uses the word soul a lot. We're at, at mm. the end of the book, we're at the gate of yeah. an afterlife. There's a lot, that, you know, the frogs have a beingness. There's a lot of um, <laughs> reference to what could be regarded traditionally as religious themes, yeah. but they're secular in his writing, I think. I mean, you mentioned the, the frogs because that's another. I mean, the, the book ends with it. Well, it doesn't end. There's a, there's, you know, you think it's at the end, and then there's a postscript, which we may or may not have time to even get to. But it, like I say, it is like a, such a complicated set of refracting mirrors because he's trying. It seems to me to say that truth is complex and never simple. Trust the tale, not the teller. And, mm -hmm, and, and mm -hmm. I sound like an obsessive, and I sort of am. I went you to do. see him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I went to see him. Um, in, he came to Listowel Writers Week in 2006, actually. Um, it was a summer's evening, and I was driving. My then boyfriend was with me, and I was driving into the town. And I was just driving along like this, and there he was in the footpath. And I, you know, braked suddenly. <laughs> and I really, I said, Jesus. He was walking along in a kind of a grey bomber jacket and he was talking to what looked like a teenage girl. And it was really astonishing. It was so incongruous to see this man on the street of an ordinary Irish town, a market town in the south of Ireland, that, you know, the kind of place I've grown up in myself. He was walking along. Um, he was giving a lecture or a, a reading that evening in the hotel, the Glistol Arms, and, you know, it was a big, big conference room. And I was very wanted to be there early, set a few rows back, and was full of eagerness and everything, and he read. He was very, very polite and gracious, and he read very in a very softly spoken voice. Um, my boyfriend at the time did not like the writing and did not like the man, I could tell, and he was getting increasingly <laughs> impatient beside me, and you know, he, he hadn't read the work or anything, and I was getting very nervous and leaning and you know, trying to hold on to every word this soft-spoken author was saying. Meanwhile, he was getting edgier and edgier, and I was petrified he would get up and walk out or something, but I still you know, think about that, and I think, ah, I'm glad I went. You know, it was one yeah, of those yeah. moments where... It's, it's one of those, this, this novel, you know, the vocation of the writer. One of the things I really enjoyed about this novel is it made me think, um, the writer Matthew DeBatier, I, I um, was at an event where I asked him, did he enjoy doing events like the one we're doing today, in fact, or like the one Kurt Sayer, uh, you attended with Kurt Sayer. And he said, well, the writer is the guy who stays home and does the work. And the author is the guy who goes out and does this crap. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, I wanted to just read a little bit from the chapter, the novel in Africa, which is set on a cruise ship where authors <laughs> are paid to go out and address um, 
passengers on a cruise liner about the state of the novel. So you would buy your ticket and you'd have five days of sailing around with Elizabeth Costello. And in this case, an African writer called Emmanuel Igudu. And I wanted to read this one paragraph because it reminds me of the, the section from Sally Rooney's novel that I read at the start of the podcast. And it's not often that Sally Rooney gets compared to J.M. Kurtzsayer, mm -hmm. but I'm going to do it. Igudu is in the, in the ballroom on the cruise ship. And he's saying to the audience, who've paid hundreds of pounds, euro or dollars to attend, how easy do you think it is, ladies and gentlemen, for this fellow to be true to his essence as writer when there are all these strangers to please? Month after month, publishers, readers, critics, students, all of them armed not only with their own ideas about what writing is or should be, what the novel is or should be, what Africa is or should be, but also about what being pleased is or should be. Do you think it is possible for this fellow to remain unaffected by all the pressure on him to please others, to be for them what they think he should be? to produce for them what they think he should produce. You know, I felt that was a, one of the, I simultaneously thought, well, that's another creed de coeur. Yes. But then I thought, but I've got no guarantee that's what Kurt Sayer thinks. And I wanted to ask both of you, you know, you've talked about Elizabeth Costello's strong views. Now, we know some of them are Kurt Sayer's strong views. But are they all Kurt Sayer's strong views? Is she a simple proxy for him? Um, I think that he has, he has indicated in interviews that her concerns are his concerns. But um, for instance, uh, that, that, that discussion about evil, you know, she started out at one position and she it worked changes. her way through. And um, he said in another interview, um, fiction is not free expression. It's dialogic. It means that uh, the writer is awakening the counter voices within himself, the counter voices. So he's writing to know what he thinks. John Didion said this, I write mm. to know what I think. Yeah, yeah. But um, he's, he's, you never, he never starts out. I think most writers would, would feel this. We write to know what we want to say. We're writing towards something. Um, fiction and nonfiction, you start out and you're writing towards something, some it and we don't know exactly what it is. And in the teasing out of that, and that's what Elizabeth Costa is doing. She's having an argument with self. She's having an argument with others. And it's what Kotze, I think, does and what a lot of writers are doing. They're writing to get to something, you know. Um, I used to think it was, you know, writing to, to put your finger on the nub of things and the nub of something to get to the heart of something. But I think actually, certainly when I think about it, I think it's, um, it's to write towards consciousness, to be more conscious. And in a way, that's what she is doing. She's yeah. being more conscious yeah. about suffering or what's the purpose. By the end of that story in the very last chapter at the gate, she's asking, was it worthwhile being a writer at all? Was, is, is art any good? And Katzea has that argument a lot. What is the point of writing? Yeah. What's the point yeah. of art? Um, at one point, she says, I think might be in the African chapter the, with the African writer, um, if I had a choice between you know, writing all those novels and doing good, I would choose doing good. Mm -hmm. 
I, I would like to, before we have to wind up in about five <laughs> yeah. minutes, but I would like to say a little bit about Kurtzow's parents. And uh, I would also like to play this. This is a very short speech Kurtzow gave at the dinner uh, at which he received, received the Nobel Prize for Literature. And the day before, he delivered quite an esoteric um, Nobel laureate speech. And so people were geared up for a second instalment of something similar. And instead, they got this. Your Majesties, Your Royal Highnesses, ladies and gentlemen, distinguished guests, friends. The other day, suddenly, out of the blue, while we were talking about something completely different, my partner, Dorothy, my friend and companion, burst out as follows. On the other hand, she said, on the other hand, how proud your mother would have been. What a pity she isn't still alive. And your father, too. How proud they would have been of you. Even prouder than of my son, the doctor, I said. Even prouder than of my son, the professor. Even prouder. If my mother was still alive, I said, she would be 99 and a half she would probably have senile dementia. She would not know what was going on around her. But of course, I missed the point. Dorothy was right. My mother would have been bursting with pride. My son, the Nobel Prize winner. And for whom, anyway, do we do the things that lead to Nobel Prizes, if not for our mothers. <laughs> mommy, mommy. <laughs> mommy, mommy, I won a prize. That's wonderful, my dear. Now eat your carrots before they get cold. <laughs> Why must our mothers be 99 and long in the grave before we can come running home with a prize that will make up for all the trouble we have been to them? To Alfred Nobel, 107 years in the grave, and to the foundation that so faithfully administers his will and that has created this magnificent evening for us, my heartfelt gratitude to my parents, how sorry I am that you cannot be here. Thank you. Can I read this little bit? Do you want to just tell us what, the, what, what you, you've got for us? Because it seems like a nice note to end on. Yeah. Um, Katzea wrote uh, three books, Boyhood, Youth, and Summertime, which are variously called memoir and fiction. He himself said they hover between memoir and fiction. 
some call them autobiographical fiction, fictional autobiography and so on. But um, this is probably my favorite one. Um, and he's written it from about his childhood. Uh, he grew up in Cape Town, South Africa. His father was a lawyer who was struck off for malpractice and fought in the Second World War in Italy. And his mother was a very loving mother, perhaps what nowadays we might call a smother mother, a little bit like um, Beckett's mother in some of the sense in that he, 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 she invested a lot in her two sons and loved them dearly and was very forward for them. But um, he has, he loves her dearly, but he, he, he often uses her. And he's, the thing about these um, memoir books is he was searingly honest, brutally honest. Not, we don't know if every single thing is true because it's hovers between memoir and fiction. But in this, he describes, he had to write an essay in school one day. He's maybe 10 or 12 um, about uh, what he did this morning. And he, he, he lied in it. He said he polished his shoes. He did, but his mother does everything for him but he lied about it and felt very guilty afterwards. He is a liar and he is cold-hearted too. A liar to the world in general, cold-hearted towards his mother. It pains his mother, he can see, that he is steadily growing away from her. Nevertheless, he hardens his heart and will not relent. His only excuse is that he is merciless to himself too. He lies but he does not lie to himself. When are you going to die? He asks her one day, challenging her, surprised at his own daring. I am not going to die, she replies. She speaks gaily, but there is something false in her gaiety. What if you get cancer? You can only get cancer if you are hit on the breast. I won't get cancer. I live forever. I won't die. He knows why she is saying this. She is saying it for him and his brother, so that they will not worry. It is a silly thing to say, but he is grateful to her for it. He cannot imagine her dying. She is the firmest thing in his life. She is the rock on which he stands. Without her, he would be nothing. She guards her breasts carefully in case they are knocked. His very first memory, earlier than the dog, Earlier than the scrap of paper is of her white breasts. He suspects he must have hurt them when he was a baby, beaten them with his fists. God, oh, it's so good. I would like to say one of the wonderful things about Batlisted, which we've seen really demonstrated this evening, is the magic when um, a writer reads the work of a writer they love. You know, Mary, you read the, both those passages so beautifully. Okay. I, I think I think Kurt Sayer should um, outsource his readings to you. <laughs> um, that's all we've got time for, I'm afraid. I want to just thank Mary for choosing such a, I think, a, a wonderful, challenging, ultimately deeply rewarding yeah. book. I hope we've captured some of the flavour of it. It is in no sense uh, a, a dry academic recycling of philosophical themes. It's a, it's a, real, a real novel and one that will live you with, with readers for a long, long time. Um, I also want to thank the amazing uh, Galway Festival team, Paul Fye, the director, uh, um, uh, Kirsty uh, uh, Warren, Jacinta Dyer, and Tracy Ferguson, who've looked after us, invited us, and looked after us brilliantly. Thank you. It's amazing to be here. Um, Andy. 
Uh, yeah, for more uh, from Galway International Arts Festival, you can check out their podcast, First Thought, and that's available on all major um, podcast platforms. Uh, and then after you've done that, you can download all 145 <laughs> previous episodes of Backlisted. 145. I know. Plus, I follow know. links, clips, and suggestions for further reading by visiting our website at backlisted.fm. We're always pleased if you contact us on Twitter and on Facebook, and now in Sound and Pictures on Instagram too. You can also share your love by directly supporting us on uh, Patreon at www.patreon dot com forward slash backlisted we aim to survive without paid for advertising and your generosity helps us to do that all the patrons uh, who subscribe get to hear backlisted episodes early and for the price of two pints of guinness at morons on the weir <laughs> lot listeners get two extra lot listed a month that's just two extra podcasts a month our very own academic lecture series where we three get to deliver lessons on the books films and music that we've been consuming for the benefit and moral improvement of our listeners very good um uh, well thank you uh, mary costello for bringing us Elizabeth Costello, or Elizabeth Costello. Uh, there is one E. Costello we haven't heard from, but if uh, E. Costello were to record a song, I think it would be this one. John, do you want to say goodnight? Song of fall, Agus, he hawa. Thank you and goodnight. If you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. It's www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Locklisted, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.